This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi, welcome back to Money and Markets. I'm Laura from AJ Bell and I'm joined by Dan from Shares. Hi. So this week we're going to talk about how you can save for your child's university fees, why company bosses who are reckless with pensions could end up in prison, and whether share buybacks are a good thing or a bad thing. Today we're joined by Tom from AJ Bell. Hello. So let's start with the news about company bosses who are being reckless with their pension schemes and they're going to be facing seven years of jail time. So Tom, can you tell us what's all this about? Uh, So cast your minds back to 2015. Um, This was the point at which Philip Green sold BHS um, to Dominic Chappelle for a quid. I always find those things interesting that a quid is paid for a massive mm-hmm. company like that. But anyway, um, roll forward, I think it was a year and the uh, the company had gone bust and 19,000 people who were in the BH pension ske- BHS pension scheme were all of a sudden facing massive cuts to their pension. So the, the pension scheme was going to go into the pension protection fund, which is a thing that's set up as a lifeboat boat scheme for when these DB schemes go wrong. There was a big thing in, in the in the Houses of Parliament. The Working Pensions Committee went over it. Philip Green sat in front of that committee and there were some big arguments. Eventually, Philip Green ag- agreed to pay, I think it's £363 million into the scheme. The mem- So it stayed out of the PPF. The members still saw a cut in their benefits. But this was the point in time at which the government said, we want to see companies taking better care of their pension schemes. We want to see more attention paid to the way that these defined benefit pension schemes are funded. And so they looked at beefing up the powers of the pensions regulator, which is in charge of regulating defined benefit pension schemes. So we've got two key measures that have been announced to a lot of fanfare this week. So quite a lot of strong language coming from the Department for Work and Pensions. So the first one, um, there'll be a new prison sentence, as you said. Um, now, the, the key here, it'll be up to seven years, possibly unlimited find, fines for exe- executives as well. But the government, the government's wording here is, is quite interesting. They've said it'll be for individuals who willfully or recklessly mishandle pension schemes. Now, I think, as, as is often the case with this kind of law when it comes through, that the key is going to be in the t- interpretation there. So you mentioned at the start that company bosses might face seven-year year fines. Whether we actually see that happening in reality is to be seen. It'll probably be determined in the courts. And what is willful and reckless when it comes to funding or not funding a pension scheme is clearly open to interpretation. Um, and then the second, uh, the second one. So there's a new penalty that's going to be introduced of a million pounds for companies who fail to comply with what's known as a contribution notice. So this is where the pensions regulator says you're not putting enough money into your pension scheme. You need to put more in. If they don't comply with one of these contribution notices, then the company bosses could face a fine of up to a million pounds. So a lot of tough ret- rhetoric. Uh, so FTSE 100 pension schemes. About half of FTSE 100 uh, companies have defined benefit pension schemes with deficits and so there's clearly an issue there that those companies need to plug those deficits and I think the hope is that in introducing these new laws and creating these new levels of responsibilities for directors that company bosses will pay more attention to funding those deficits rather than other priorities for the company. Now the one thing that the government has said it won't do is require companies to stop paying dividends where they've got pension deficits. So this was something that a few people had suggested should happen. So you've got companies that have got big pension schemes that oh, where, the, where the deficits are huge. Sometimes the liabilities of these pension schemes are bigger than the whole uh, market capital, capitalization of the company. 
Um, but nonetheless, they're still paying out dividends. Some people felt that that wasn't right, that they were these companies were rewarding shareholders today rather than honouring the promises to their pensioners. But the government clearly was concerned about the implications doing something like that would have on investment in those companies and in, in the UK economy as well. Clearly, if you went to the extreme and said, I don't know, a company with a huge deficit is no longer allowed to pay out dividends, then you're going to see funding for those companies dry up pretty quickly. And at this current time, with the economy and with the uncertainty around the B word and all that kind of stuff, I don't think that's something that the government wants to do at the moment. So you started off by talking about BHS and mm. obviously the problems that those those people in that pension scheme face. But how common is it for um, company bosses to be I guess what whatever the definition was, willfully reckless um, with pension schemes, and yeah. how much is it just that companies aren't really paying in enough, but they're not necessarily being reckless? With yeah. The so, so the BHS example was extreme, but there are there have been other situations where there have been mergers and acquisitions going on, and there's been certainly a risk that the pension scheme was going to be offloaded as part of that merger and that that, mer- that, that merger or that business and corporate activity, and there wouldn't be due attention paid to the ability of the new owner of that. Of the, of, of the pension scheme to be able to pay those pensions on an on-running basis, but I think you're uh, you're right. That is, it's an extreme example, and I think the the, B, the the issue around BHS really kind of brought this all to a head. I think people still want they want some reassurance that after working all their life that they're going to have this mm. pension at the end of end of their working life as they go into retirement. Do you, do you think this these sort of new announcements are going to put enough pressure on companies to to make sure that? The workers get kind of what they what they expect. It's I think it, it inevitably will push it up the corporate agenda. I mean, it just has to when you when you if you've got the potential of a prison sentence hanging over you. And I know I said that willful and willful, willful and reckless. How do you define that? But clearly, no company bosses want to go going to want to go through the process of defending themselves through the court when they potentially face such a huge pet prison sentence and an unlimited fine as well so I think it'll push it up the board agenda I think it already has I think the stuff that's gone on with BHS means that company bosses are increasingly keen to see that their deficits on their DB schemes if they've got one are reduced and I think for investors as well anyone who's investing in a company as well the fact that a lot of this stuff has been in the headlines the fact that something like uh like BHS and other companies with their significant pension deficits have been in the headlines. If you're looking to invest, invest in a company, then whether or not it's got a big pension deficit and might have to fund that in the future at the cost of other things, the business is something that more and more people will be thinking about. And so this week, Dan, you've been looking at share buybacks because they've hit the news um, more recently. So firstly, we should probably just explain what is a share buyback. Sure. I mean, this actually does tie in with what some of the stuff that Tom was just talking about. It's, it's how companies are spending their money mm. and, and perhaps rethinking their priorities. But um, in a nutshell, share buybacks involve a company generates cash from operations. And with that, it can either reinvest the money into its business. Um, and if it's got any money left over, it can use that to pay down debt or perhaps it wants to do an acquisition or it can return some money to shareholders. So this normally comes in the form of either a a dividend or that they can buy back shares uh, either from shareholders and they do something called a tender offer. So they say, you know, we'll buy this amount of shares from you at this price um, or they just go straight into the stock market and they'll buy back those shares. And the the reason that they do this is because they tend to either, uh, some will keep those shares and use them for uh, payments for 
um, staff bonuses or, or future, um, perhaps they store them up for, they might you want to use them for something in the future, but most people tend to cancel them. So the number of shares in issue for a company will reduce. So that artificially inflates the earnings per share for a business. Um, and it also means when it comes to future dividends, there's fewer shares in issue. So the amount of money that they pay in dividends, essentially, if you're existing, a remaining shareholder, um, should hopefully get a, bit, a bigger share of the pot. So that's why companies talk about it as if returning uh, cash to shareholders, but it, it kind of works in, in different ways. Um, now, the reason why it's topical at the moment is um, firstly, Sony, um, the well-known Japanese electronics company, has just done its first ever share buyback. Um, it's going to do $910 million worth by buying back on the market. Now, companies have been buying back stock um, for a very long time. Um, in Japan, there's been a push amongst companies to be more shareholder friendly, and, and this is kind of a natural evolution to start doing more buybacks. Um, but perhaps uh, equally as important is that there's a couple of senators um, amongst the Democrats in, in America um, getting a bit annoyed because when Donald Trump announced he was going to do tax cuts, he did it because he wanted to encourage um, companies to, to put more money and, and stimulate the economy. So if they were saving money on tax, perhaps they would be spending their money otherwise um, on employment, for example. Um, so the argument is that these companies in America have been going crazy with share buybacks, um, yet a lot of them have also been cutting jobs. So people are going, well, I don't, that's not benefiting the economy, it's benefiting a company. Um, so it stirred up this debate about should companies have to pay staff a minimum of at least $15 an hour before they're allowed to do share buybacks. So th th there's this, it's opened up this massive debate. Um, and it goes, goes back to linking to, Tom, what you were saying about pensions, is that um, companies perhaps are, are having to think about how they use their money best. Um, but is there any evidence in terms of what's better, a shareholder getting a dividend or a shareholder, um, the company doing share buybacks in terms of financially as an investor? Is there any evidence of it, what you're better off? Well, it, it, there are. It's, it's, you have to look at it on a sort of a case by case basis. But if if we say um, that you're a shareholder and a company does a share buyback, so you would benefit from. A, sort of enhanced earnings per share, um, potentially might benefit from the uh, greater dividends in the future. So if you were, um, if you were doing, taking part in a tender offer and you're selling your shares um, as part of share buyback to a company, the amount of tax that you would pay, if you were a UK resident, so you, you, you have a, a capital gains allowance, but you then pay, if you're a high rate taxpayer, you pay 20% on top tax. Um, but if you're receiving cash as a dividend, um, the tax rate is actually higher. So it's, if, if, if this is held outside of an ISA, you have a dividend allowance of £2,000 a year, which you can receive. And above that, if you're a high rate taxpayer, ta high rate taxpayer you'd pay 32.5%. So from, from a tax benefit in the UK, it would favour you selling your shares back to the company. But then, of course, you're giving up some of your investment. So it's a, it's a really complicated thing to, to try and understand. There isn't a better answer. But there is a, there is a real negative um, in this whole debate, which I think is very important for investors to understand. So if a share buyback artificially inflates earnings per share, many companies set their bonus schemes for management based on earnings per share targets. So if a share buyback 
essentially pushes up the earnings per share figure, a management team might have suddenly hit their bonus target or have some stock options um, triggered. But they've not really done anything, have they? Interesting. Yeah. So, and then, then you get to the next step, which is if a company is buying back its shares, it becomes an active buyer of stock in the market. So it actually could push up the share price. Um, now, if a company's worried um, that its share price has been really low, it can do a share buyback to kind of fix the share price. But is that really the best use of its money when actually um, has it considered reinvesting the spare cash in its business? And should management really be caring about what the, sh- what the share price is doing? It should be running the business. So you can see that this, this becomes um, a very large debate. And there are no, there isn't a single answer to say what's, what's good or bad. Um, but you, you know this argument's not going to go away. And I think it's quite important if you do invest in the stock market, um, you, you understand the pros and the cons of it. It's probably also worth pointing out that it, this doesn't just apply to individual companies. It applies to investment trusts as well. And lots of investment trusts use share buybacks as a, a mechanism to control their discount. So if the discount on the investment trust gets to a certain level, they might do share buybacks to help kind of narrow some of that discount, which in this it works in exactly the same way as you were saying in that it kind of artificially bumps up the share price a bit but so it's not just applicable for those that invest in individual stocks also for those that invest in investment trusts no you, you, you're absolutely right it's so obviously with investment trusts there are actually people who um and this is something which i i wouldn't encourage at all there are people who trade investment trusts simply because they know specific ones have a discount control mechanism i.e um, if if the discount to net asset value gets really wide, they know that they'll be coming into the market and buying back those shares to fix the share price. Um, you know, these things don't always play out. They, on paper, that sounds like a no-brainer, but um, absolutely nothing. Something I, I don't think people should be doing. Um, that's not proper investing. You know, that's that's day trading, and it's extremely high risk. Um, but it is. Some people, when they invest in investment trust, they do like the fact that there is some sort of control about the discount not getting too big. Or, or indeed, if they trade at premium to net asset value, they can issue more shares to push the premium down. Um, so it, it, it's, um, it's a very, I think it's a really interesting topic. Uh, and I, I almost guarantee we'll, it will be back on the podcast in the future um, because there's so much more to talk about it. So, Laura, anyway, I think we should get on to junior ISAs and putting money away uh, for your child's university costs. Now, we know university costs are very high. Yeah. How much do you, how much do you think that they, it costs now? So, for the average three-year degree, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm guessing, looking between the three of us, that we went to university mm-hmm. when tuition fees were slightly cheaper. Um, so, what do you think the average student, the amount of debt they come out with, Tom? Um, I feel like I've already read this figure. This means you've probably been listening to what I've been talking about. I'm going to say £50,000. Dan? (laughs) £49,000, 997 pence. So it seems like this isn't so much of a hidden secret. The average (laughs) debt, drum roll... Fifty thousand pounds. Thanks, really Tom, for earning that. that yeah, Sorry. I should have prepared that better. <laughs> but anyway, so fifty thousand pounds is a lot of money per student. Is the average amount mm. that um, they come out of, of university um, in debt. So there's a whole other part to this that we should talk about around student loans, and I think we'll probably cover that in another podcast. But for now, we're just going to look at the ways that you can use a junior ISA to save up that fifty thousand pounds. But I think, sorry to to jump in, but this the most important question I have is. 
as a parent, please tell me that I didn't have to start saving 10 years before my children even existed. No. Is there hope for someone who, whether they're closer to university than there are? You know, There's to, hope to for your born. children yet, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> so, so if you are super organised, um, and the, I mean, this is obviously going to be, a, I would imagine, a relatively small number of people who, in the first stages of having their first child and they're sleep deprived in the first few months, decide that they're going to open a junior ISA. I completely acknowledge that that is not going to be top of the to-do list. But for those people that, that do that, then they need to pay in £1,900 a year until the child reaches the age of 18. Um, and then they'll get to that £50,000 figure. So I've assumed 4% growth each year, um, which is kind of moderate after fees, I would say. Yeah. But over the longer term, you might get more than that. You might get a bit less. Um, if you wanted to put in the full, so you've got an allowance of £4,260 at the moment that you can put into a junior ISA, which will go up again in April. Um, but if you wanted to put that full allowance in each year, you would need to do it for the first seven years of the child's life. Then that money will grow and the beauty of compounding means that that will grow to £50,000 when they reach age 18. But if you think... If you don't get around to it until they get to age five, say, so obviously early years of a child's life, there's a lot of childcare costs, things like that. Um, so if you start age five when they go to school, then you need to put in £2,900 a year until they reach age 18, and then you get to £50,000. If, like you, Dan, a bit of a last-minute Larry, forgot about this, <laughs> then you can start saving when your child's eight, yeah. Okay. Is that does that apply to you? Are your children older than that? Well, my eldest is ten, so it's it's kind of eight, isn't it? Okay. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. Not going to go to university, I'm afraid. <laughs> Sorry. So make her go two years later. You're fine. Yeah. <laughs> um, so if you start saving when your child's eight and you put the full four thousand two hundred sixty pound allocation away each year, then you get to the crucial sum by their eighteenth birthday. But at that point, you get to just over fifty three thousand pounds. So you're ahead at that point. So there's there's I guess there's a couple of things. What one is, you don't need all that money at the point at which they're 18 do you so you, you no. so that even if you do start after their age 10 or, or a little bit older um there is still time to do this um but my problem is i keep getting these demands from uh, my kids school saying oh no you know they're doing a trip um you know my daughter does drum lessons which costs a lot of money and um there, there is no point in your life i don't think as a parent where you suddenly have this amazing gap that you can you can put aside cash so i think it's um it sadly is quite important that you start early and get into this regular regular so think, habit yeah, yeah partly um, starting early also means that that initial money that you put in has 18 years to grow and benefit from investment growth so that is partly why you have to put in significantly less if you're starting earlier whereas if you're only starting when they're 10 or 12 or whatever you've got less time for that money to grow now like you say it could be that you um, don't hand over the pot until 21 when they finish university um, or you hand it over in tranches throughout that period so you could kind of gain some extra time for yourself there but I completely agree it's it's very hard um, to kind of find the extra money but I think if you start by putting a monthly amount away and then you can always ramp that up or make kind of lump sum contributions you can also get a junior ISA you can get other people to pay into it so grandparents maybe instead of getting an extravagant Christmas present or birthday present they could just put some money away into their junior ISA I don't know how your 10 year old daughter would feel about that but she'd thank you in the future well I try I mean it's it, I did get her excited about investing once when when I um I did I invested some money into a fund 
And I was trying to describe to her what was in it. She was like, oh, don't know what's that. And I said, like, you are now the part owner of um, America's largest manufacturer of peanut butter. And she was like, yeah, that's just amazing. And it was the little things like that to, to put it into the mm. context of their world where she still seemed, she, and, and she got it. She understood what was going on. But I guess is the point is at age 18, it's then, it, legally it's their money, isn't it? Mm. So you could be the, the greatest parent in the world and the kindest grandparents. Um, you still have to sort of make sure they understand it's legally their money, but it's going towards your university fees. Yeah, you can debate the merit of giving an 18-year-old a pot of £50,000 and sending them off to university and yeah. how well that money might be spent. Yeah. I think myself at 18 probably would not have spent <laughs> that wisely. <laughs> and so before we go, I think it's worth touching on some new data that highlights big problems facing various communities uh, with accessing cash machines. Um, so, they, Laura, what have you been finding out about this? Yeah, so there's some figures that came out this week, according to which, around the number of cash machines that have been closed. So, in the last six months of 2018, almost 500 cash machines across the UK were closed. Um, and so, they're flagging the potential problems of people being able to access cash. Obviously, this mainly affects um, older people or people um, that aren't quite so kind of online banking savvy or still rely heavily on cash. Um I'm a bit like the Queen. I never carry cash. Um, but Dan, are you a, are you a cash carrier? I, I am a cash carrier, but my dad has never used a cash machine in his life. What? Wow. Yeah. How? Because, and he, he lives um, he lives in the countryside, but I don't want to call it remote. Um, he doesn't trust um, online banking. He's never done that. He, he walked... Two miles to. Well, he was asking me about um, good rates. I said, look, look, go go to this bank. They've got a really good rate. Um, actually, if you get a, like a current account, you got to, but you got to go to the branch. And so he went there, uh, and they said, yeah, I'm sorry, but you, you've got to. The only way to open this account is if you just quickly do it online, but you can still service it through the branch. And he and he came back and said, I've I had a nice walk, but I'm not even going to risk even just that application process online. Um, so he he goes to. Uh, he goes to like the post office and draws out cash when he needs it. But, right. Um, but yes, it, it's you know, there is a generation, isn't there, that mm. don't that still don't trust it. So um, I think you know it is a big problem. Mm. You know what what do you do if you haven't got cash? Because you know, some com- some shops you assume in living in a city that they still accept cards, but I bet there must be shops that still want cash because they've got to have cash to pay the wages of their staff, little things like that you have to think of, isn't it? Yeah, and I definitely think I'm guilty of living in kind of like a city bubble where Mm. so much of what I do is just based on card and then you go outside of it and visit people elsewhere in the UK and you go to these smaller kind of more rural communities and I think some of them, if you rocked up with a card to pay for one pound of something then you'd be laughed out of the shop hmm. yeah and you mentioned earlier as well it's um it will generally be more vulnerable people in society who are going to struggle as a result of reduction in the number of cash machines i'm sure for any of us here it's not going to be a, a huge issue there's places near where i live in north london now that don't even accept cash anymore it's only contactless all the time but if you as you say if you live in the middle of a rural community if you're someone who's not used to technology or banking apps and you know if you're in your 80s and you don't want to get used to that type kind of stuff that should be entirely up to you then um it's a it's a difficult issue and one way there's not an obvious answer really you're seeing post offices closing down you're seeing cash points reducing these are just things that are happening because of the the uh, change in technology and the, the, the economics that those uh those providers are facing and you can't kind of turn around to a 
bank and say you're not allowed to shut down branches anymore unless you nationalise them, which may well happen if Jeremy Corbyn wins power. But presuming that doesn't happen, then the the tide's only going in one direction, I think, and it's it's quite difficult to see a way out. And likewise, you can't say to people, well, you have to learn how to use the internet and you mm. have to trust online banking and you have to move all of your finances online because for a lot of people, Dan's dad included, that, that wouldn't be an option and that they would be comfortable with. No, and I think at sort of one point I perhaps didn't explain at the start was um, people worried about using online because they're worried about fraud. And it's the same with cash points, isn't it? People worried that their cards mm. are going to be sort of um, skimmed and someone else will be looking behind them and, and sort of see that they're see what the password is. So that it's still still a big issue, and I think that people are still quite afraid of it. Mm. Um, the only things I can think of, is you can go into local shops and get cash back, but again, you know, have they got spare cash to... You know, if no one's using... You know, fewer people are using cash, have, have shops got... Can they do a cash-back um, facility? Mm. Um, but it goes to um, Link, which is the ca- one of the cash machine operators. Like a, the, I think the UK's largest cash machine network. So that, the reason why it's all back in the news is because they're talking about dropping some of their um, fees. And so they're worried that um, some of the free cash machines that you have uh, won't become will be less profitable and so they seem that an obvious target for banks who are trying to strip out costs to, to close them down. Um, they, they've come back with some proposals but it seems like it's, it's not enough. Um, so I, I, you know, again there's probably not a definitive answer about what will happen. Uh, let's hope there is a solution uh, to be found. And I think that's about all we've got time for this week. So thanks a lot for listening. And as ever, you can send any thoughts or ideas you have to podcast at ajbell.co.uk. And we'll see you next week. Thanks. Thank you. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor. The podcast talks about various money issues. Just don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. You should also recognise that how an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future and that tax rules apply.